0: Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the show that strives to reveal the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Whether these places are cities, fictional locations, street corners, public squares, or barely noticed nooks and crannies, we will bring you stories, features, and interviews uncovering the texture of these places. Sean Axemaker joins us today. Sean is a prolific film essayist based in Seattle. He was the film critic for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer until 2009 and the DVD columnist for IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, until 2007. He is the founding manager of ParallaxView.org. That's Parallax-View.org. It is a collective of professional film writers in the Seattle area, and he's also the editor of Stream On Demand. It's a syndicated column and a site providing selective coverage and reviews of streaming films on places such as Netflix, Amazon Instant Video, Hulu, and other streaming services. You can learn more about Sean at seanaxe.com. That's seanaxe, like the weapon.com. Today, Sean and I will be exploring how places are depicted in film. We will focus not only on specific films that provide us with a strong sense of place, but also on the methods filmmakers choose to provide us viewers with a strong sense of place. Sean, thank you for trudging through this gray, blustery Seattle weekend into downtown Seattle and and joining me to chat about this. Hey, I'm glad to be here and glad to be out of the wind. Sean and I met very briefly about, I don't know, eight months ago. We have a mutual friend, Matt Zoller-Seitz, who's the editor-in-chief of uh, RogerEbert.com, and he came over to, to talk about his book at the time, the new book, The Wes Anderson Collection, and you know, I just listened to Sean talk about films with Matt and absorbed everything so I'm, I'm really glad that you agreed to be on the show today happy to be here so tell us a little bit about you how did you become a film critic and writer was it a did you know from the beginning of time that this was your calling or was it a tortuous path into what you are now
1: I wrote my first film review when I was in high school just for a little newsletter and then when I got into college I started writing reviews for every single college paper that I ended up with and but it was always a hobby or You know, it was always an extra thing that I did in addition to my regular job. I moved to Seattle in 1995 to be an inventory manager at Scarecrow Video, uh, the greatest video store in the known universe, and it's still running as a nonprofit here in Seattle. I am no longer there. In 1998, I became a full-time writer. I wrote for the Seattle Weekly, and then I went to the uh, PI, and I wrote for a number of websites because that was when the web was taking off. Uh, at the time, I actually wrote a lot of reviews, video reviews, for Amazon.
0: And IMDb, I think, is part of Amazon. A few people might not know that. Is that it true? is now.
1: It is now. It wasn't at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I started writing for the IMDb, I, I think it was right around the time that Amazon had just bought it, and which made my uh, DVD column something that was attractive to them.
0: And now you, you also write for Stream On Demand, or, or basically I think you... I created
1: created Stream on Demand uh, because I realized that more people were getting their movies through streaming than through disc anymore. And that was where people's interests were. So there's a lot of TV shows and a lot of movies that show up that don't get covered and a lot of people are turning to these streaming services for their movies and so I thought that that would be helpful to focus on the things that aren't
0: getting all the uh, publicity. So let's begin, let's let's kick this off by identifying and unpacking some films that really tend to provide viewers with a strong sense of place. And perhaps before we even get there, we need to chat a bit about what do we mean by a sense of place. I'll start with, with an initial observation. I think a sense of place should mean more than a faithful representation of a certain location. I think a film that zeroes in on even the smallest idiosyncratic details can also succeed at creating a sense of place. Um, What does a sense of place in cinema mean to you? Well, um,
1: and a lot of times I think about them in places that I've actually never been to, where you come out of a film thinking that you've got a sense of what this world was like. And like you say, nooks and crannies, I think of, say, the uh, films of Jean Renoir, one of the things that I loved about the films that he shoots on location is that he hones in on neighborhoods, and he creates communities. And he does that by giving you a sense of the, the way that um, all the apartments, say, they, they face each other, and the way that the neighbors, when you know, they duck out their window and talk to someone else, the way that a community forms around the local bar or a bistro, Um, Things like that. And you get a sense of the way people live in this little neighborhood, in this little place. Sometimes they may be real locations and sometimes they may be completely created in the studio, but they feel like they're lived in.
0: Mm -hmm. I I think there is something to be said about a sense of place emanating from how the characters in the film interact with their physical space. I think we will explore that as we talk about these films. Um, To what extent is a sense of place only dependent on the physical locations versus how the the characters interact as well. So uh, let's start. One that comes to mind, it's one of my my most important films that really had an impact on when I first saw it. it, was Wings of Desire, a German film directed by Wim Wenders. I think it was released in 1987. And the film really begins by following two trench coat wearing angels as they move freely through west and east berlin and in the mid 80s and they have access to people's thoughts and emotional life they're in, in some sense omniscient and they try to intervene as best they can though it seems like they have limited power when it comes to that and the first portion of the film is shot in really some shows black and white by henry alecán and I, I read somewhere that he actually used his either grandmother's or mother's uh Stockings to put it in front of the lens in order to give that effect, which is which is quite something. Um, if listeners want to go take a look at that and, and think about that as you look at this black and white footage, but the the camera glides in and out of public and private spaces, and it really shows the scarred sections of Berlin in an unblinking way, as well as the shinier post World War II sections. You know, capitalism taking hold, and they live side by side, and it's really quite a contrast. And then the second portion of the film shifts from black and white to color once one of the angels decides to fall to earth and wants to renounce being an omniscient angel and become human because he he seems to fall in love with a trapeze artist. And now that he's human, he learns more about what it means to be emotional and he has limited knowledge. He can't understand people's emotions and thoughts on a one-to-one perspective anymore. And the camera no longer has that gliding, all-knowing perspective. Did you also feel that, that sense of immersion when you watched that film? What was your experience of Wings of Desire?
1: Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, and I've seen, that a, I've seen that a number of times. It is one of my favorite movies. You do get an angel's eye view in those first ones. I remember uh, uh, some of the ones that, that uh, images that stick with me are just looking down from on high and then coming down and sort of floating like uh, the, there's a scene, uh, there's a, a traffic jam. The the camera starts up high, and it doesn't glide so much as it just—you just end up down, but you do feel like you're sort of floating above the road, and peeking in on the people in the cars and peeking in on their minds at the same time, and just sort of—you know—checking out their thoughts.
0: So there's a a, the physical representation of the space, and this backtracks to my earlier thought, but you get those uh, expressionistic fragments of people's thinking. But together, they form a certain sense of the people who live in Berlin and what their thoughts are and what their worries are and their emotional state. I think that is as as important as the physical locations and giving a sense of of Berlin as a cultural and physical place.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm sure that was a a lot of what was on uh, vendors' mind at the time. I'm trying to recall, but I think almost all of those thoughts, even the ones that aren't profound... Do have um, a sense of, of of real personalness. What I come away with, you know, in memory is this gestalt of people living their lives and having both very immediate thoughts, and then their mind wandering to larger questions of the universe, and that all uh, exists within the same frame and within the same soundtrack
0: absolutely and and I, it's interesting when the mood shifts and it goes from black and white to color you get used to seeing berlin in this stark contrast and it makes sense because it's the angel's point of view and there's something about black and white which is looking at the essence of things arguably and then when the angel falls his name is damio and his armor falls and hits him in the head and blood comes out of his head looks at the the blood in his hand tastes it asks people what color this is suddenly it's less schematic and you feel the cold, or at least I did. I felt the cold in Berlin. There's something about color that really seeps and gives you a physicality, which is very different from black and white, which is interesting. The black and white, it had a, almost a portraiture quality
1: to it. The idea that you were looking almost at, at photographs, like at an exhibition. It kind of idealized the city. Henry Ellican's photography made everything look just really stunningly beautiful. And it's not that the color scenes are not beautiful, but they – well, among other things, the camera is suddenly down on the ground at their level throughout the rest of the film. It doesn't soar. It doesn't take this godlike or angel-like view uh, of humanity. It is down there with them in the middle of everything.
0: Yeah, and you really feel the weight uh, suddenly of the film appear. It's really quite something. And Wings of Desire was directed by Wim Wenders. And another film of his that I really love is, is Alice in the Cities. I don't remember when it came out, but I want to say something like 1973, something around that that era. It's one of his first, maybe third films, shot in 16 millimeter black and white. And it basically follows a, a disenchanted German journalist that is somehow stranded, though stranded out of his own choice, in the United States, in the East Coast. And there's this shot of him in a motel, and it's really looking at him sort of wallowing in his own misery. And he opens the curtain, and he sees neon lights, and he sees the traffic, and he sees all the, the signs of fast food restaurants. So there's something Vin Vendors does really well, which is really getting a sense of place based on quiet, silent moments in which characters are in that I think is an interesting theme across his work. I don't know if you agree, disagree, or... Yeah, um,
1: I also like the way that he tends to go to different parts of these cities that you're not used to seeing. Wings of Desire, not so much, because he starts off with a lot of of major uh, landmarks. But uh, there's another Vim Venders film he did a couple years later called The American Friend that mostly takes place in Europe, but it begins with Dennis Hopper's character in New York City, and you look at a part of New York City that I can't think I've ever seen in a movie before. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's like Hell's Kitchen
0: or something like yeah, that? Yeah, something like that. Years?
1: When he's visiting Samuel Fuller, is that the uh, Nicholas Ray. Nicholas Ray, yeah. Who plays an artist. Uh, who f- he's, a, he's an artist and a forger and he turns out to make more money as a forger than writing than painting under his own uh name and uh and it's his studio and you look out and you see this kind of industrial wasteland where there's hardly any human beings on the street it's a place that that's full of warehouses and it's uh near the ports and if you told me that it was you know, anywhere on the East Coast, I would have believed you because I didn't recognize it. It did not have a sense of a recognizable New York. But it was a New York that caught Vim Vendor's eye and said, I'm going to do this. It's this alienated idea of America that is not the idealized version that vendors, among other people, saw of the U.S. They really saw it as an aspirational place. And
0: that's really interesting because now that I think about it, he goes uh, – Dan- uh, Dennis Hopper then goes to Hamburg – where Bruno Ganz's character lives, and it's also up near the ports. It feels industrial, but there's a certain cozy or lived-in feeling when you move from New York to Hamburg, and there's a certain warmth there. He has a frame shop, and it's in this
1: neighborhood, and it that's a place when you see people walking down the street, it looks like they're the, they're going to see the butcher, they're walking from their home. That is a real lived-in place, and it doesn't have any landmark that you can look at and say, I know where that is but it sure feels like a place that people live and work.
0: But then there, there's something ominous going on, because if I remember correctly, the place where Bruno Gantz and his family lives, it's this typical European whole block apartment building, but everywhere around it has been torn down and is ready for new construction. So Wim Wenders has always been interested in how the, the Americanization mm-hmm. influence comes into mm-hmm. Germany in particular and what it does to the fabric of the culture. It's a really fascinating stuff. Um, what other films do you think excel at portraying places? I've had, you know, I, I brought Wings of Desire, and now we went on the Vim Vendors uh, line. But but tell me, what, what do you think?
1: Well, I'll bring another one that you started off with when you uh, contacted me, and that was Taxi Driver. Um, and partly because uh, just last night with some friends, I watched a film called Hardcore, which was written and directed by Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver. And where a taxi driver spends a lot of time in, you know, in Times Square in New York City in the 1970s before the renovations uh, – I mean, this is a retrospective thing. It's before the renovations at the time. That was what New York was. And hardcore does the same thing in Los Angeles. It goes off to um, the, the streets that have the, the, the porno theaters and the adult bookstores and the massage parlors. And it's kind of it's, – it's a really chintzy-looking thing in hardcore – in Taxi Driver, it has this kind of mythic, Stygian uh, presentation. You know, shot at night, uh, the camera often, you know, either looking out the window or way down low by the tires of the car coming along and looking at the steam rising out of the manhole covers. And th- the whole thing looking like this very expressionist, theatrical uh, portrait of the slums, the urban slums of New York City.
0: And what was interesting, when I first saw that movie, I was too young to have seen it, but uh, when it came out, I thought, wow, this really captures a sense of the grittiness and the seediness of New York. But it was only as I grew older and arguably more mature that I thought, you know, certainly New York had those components, but what I'm seeing is not necessarily a a unadorned view of New York. I'm seeing a view of New York that is filtered through Travis Bickle, the Robert De Niro's character's mind. And you hear the narrative and who was the, was it Bernard Herman who did the soundtrack? Yes, it was. Yeah, and there's the, the combination of that music and Travis Bickle's somewhat um, disturbed mind made me realize, well, am I really looking at an unadorned presentation of what is a real seedy New York of the mid seventies, or is it a expression of Travis Bickle's mind or both? Perhaps that's fair.
1: That's where your location scout comes in and says, you know, this is the street that you're really going to want to see this. And they didn't do any set dressing for it. The city ended up doing some set dressing for them because as they were shooting, there was a garbage strike. They didn't have to throw stuff around. There was garbage everywhere, literally. So it was an exaggerated view of what New Yorkers believe New York to be at its worst all the time. It just happened to be during a garbage strike when it was at its most extreme, and that really worked for the vision. Uh, on some of these streets, wherever you throw the camera, there's garbage piled everywhere, and there's trash in the, in the gutter. And then when you backlight the steam coming out of the manhole covers at night,
0: I mean, it really does
1: look like you're cr- crossing the river Styx. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, a, a
0: hellish vision. Um, I remember being so impressed by it when I was young, and impressed as, as in you know being socked in the head watching it on laser disc. My mom's boyfriend had a pioneer laser disc player, and he had maybe twenty four of these laser discs. And one of them was Taxi Driver, and I must have been what eight or ten, somewhere in between, playing that. So oh, that was quite an impact. I do believe that was the very first audio commentary
1: ever recorded. It was one of the first anyways, but it, and it was the first one Martin Scorsese did. And it's interesting that when, when I heard a lot of young directors in the 1990s talk about making films, they talked about listening to Martin Scorsese on the commentary track of that laser disc talking about the making of Taxi Driver.
0: Wow. I, they must have slowed him down because he's a rapid-fire delivery, I'm sure, when <laughs> giving commentary. And then let's think about it. In the mid-'70s, we have Taxi Driver, but we also have Woody Allen coming up with Annie Hall, Manhattan, And quite a very different presentation of New York in the roughly in the same year. I think Manhattan was 1979. Andy Hall was 77. But um, we get pictures of him and Diane Keaton in Manhattan, sitting in front of the Brooklyn Bridge as the sun comes out, and it's a long shot, and you hear Gershwin tunes. Such a different feel.
1: Well, and there's a there's a difference between uh, living in the dregs of society and Woody Allen, who lived in the nicer parts of town and had a very romantic view of of New York. And so his his film, and it was those were both shot by Gordon Willis, um, the Prince of Darkness, who who also did uh, a very different New York for the Godfather films. But yeah, you saw a very romantic view um, of New York. It looked beautiful in Woody Allen's eyes. He didn't glamorize it as so much as he he romanticized those great widescreen black and white shots of Manhattan in the movie Manhattan uh, make that look like just the most beautiful city on earth.
0: Yeah, with the Gershwin song, I think it's like a a minute and a half, two minutes opening montage from... Manhattan showing all those, uh, the big vistas as well as the nooks and crannies. But I think you're right. Um, this is a very different New York. I think about a Canadian urbanist called Richard Florida, which has described the changing of the working class framework in the United States. And he has identified a creative class, which really focuses on knowledge, work, art, media, etc. And what we're seeing really in the mid 70s with these movies is the, the creative class of New York, Woody Allen and, and buddies. And a sense of place also emerges from that, not just by seeing the Brooklyn Bridge and those sweeping vistas. But Woody Allen, for instance, meets his friends at Elaine's, which is a restaurant cafe, I think, in the Upper East Side. I think it' reasonably close. I think I read it close about it a year ago, and that is some kind of uh, marker for those in the know, because Elaine's was particularly popular with the intelligentsia, you know, mid seventies, you know, Hollywood. That that was the place to go. So he was he didn't shy away from also Picking specific locations, movie theaters and right. restaurants. Yeah, yeah well, I, if
1: I recall, in um, Crimes and Misdemeanors, he keeps going to, is it the film forum? He takes his his niece to the movies all I, the it time. The Angelica
0: Theater, maybe? One or the other. Yeah.
1: yeah, and they were doing, it was a place where they're showing retrospectives.
0: Yeah, I think, what is it, the sorrow and the pity? or That was a uh, That was, that was Hall. Hall, yeah. <laughs> he always wants to subject mm-hmm. people to these uh, very...
1: Difficult movies. If you want to stay on New York, I was thinking about some other New York filmmakers, uh, Sidney Lumet, who uh, in Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico had a very gritty urban New York. And a couple months ago, the original taking of Pelham 123 came out. And it's not something I had thought about as being a New York movie until I watched it again and realized how uh, even though so much of it takes place down in the subway and in a Transit Center, which was actually the real transit center they shot in, they had a whole lot of the connective tissue of how they got messages back and forth through the streets and through Times Square. And you got a sense of the, the, the New York grid above. And as uh, things you know built up, crowds started to form. And you, you really got a sense of the living New York City in that movie, of just putting the camera on the street and having – The actors, you know, doing their thing, but in police outfits and police cars. And then you just had crowds suddenly gather around because I wonder what's going on here. You actually got the real city there, the heartbeat of the real city, getting involved in that movie.
0: Yeah, and and if you go back to Dog Day Afternoon, you definitely see that as well when people collect outside of the bank that is being robbed. There's a certain natural – it was amazing what he did, a certain naturalism, almost like a journalistic presentation of just the – the fever pitch of energy that happens outside of the bank while Al Pacino and, and folks are holed up inside trying to make the best of a botched-up situation. I haven't seen The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, the original one, nor actually the remake, and I have friends that keep telling me, oh, you fool, you have to go see it. And given that when I was young... I used to get atlases, and my mom would hate me. I would take a marker and draw fictional subway lines that would make sense in all of these cities. The fact that you told me, oh, you can see the underbelly of the transportation system, and that tells you a lot about what's happening above, that really fascinates me, and I'm going to go follow it. What else um, do you want to bring up before I start jumping in and throwing more stuff in there?
1: All right, well, we'll uh, we'll throw out a favorite of mine, um, and it's just a film that I, I went through at uh, CIF uh, recently for their um, cinema dissection, and that's Blade Runner. One of the things that's interesting is it is both a real city and a fictional city that is being portrayed there. It's Los Angeles 2020, and it's shot in Los Angeles 1982. And one of the most fascinating things about that film for me is that it shows that the future is built on the present. The streets are the same. They're laid out the same. The the uh, buildings are retrofitted. Uh, you see, you see things built over top of what's existing, and it made things easier for the production to not have to create something, uh, you know, from scratch, but to then build on what existed. But it also then gave you a sense of how we got to to the future. It's one of the few times where you uh, where you can look at a film and recognize what it used to be at the same time that you see what it is now.
0: And it's interesting, and I've heard this said many times before, some of the best science fiction doesn't necessarily have to change your view and perception of a place and make it completely foreign to what it looks like today. The most successful ones extend what today looks like just by one or two revolutions so you can really identify, oh my God, the science fiction scenario isn't that far away. That's also true about the people. The Edward James Olmos character in that movie is fascinating to me because it's almost, I consider it prescient. He's some combination, ambiguous combination of, I think, Chinese, Mexican. His language shifts between these. You, d- you can't quite place him. But if you think about L.A. now, it's prescient, right? The, the combination of all these different cultures creating its, its own emergent presence. And that's part of a sense of place as well, independently of buildings. Yeah, it tells you a lot more about the
1: present of the time the film was made than about the the future that it's projecting. And in Los Angeles in 1982, you know, smog was a huge issue. So you have a film where you never see the sky, Mm -hmm. where it's always raining and you can't see more than a couple blocks ahead of you. And yet the film stays, you know, except for the time when uh, Deckard goes up in that uh, spinner, that flying car. You're on the street. Mm -hmm. You're either on the street or you're in the boardroom of some rich building that's, you know, rich man that's way, way, way above all the street level stuff. And the way you get away from the street is to go up high into these buildings.
0: And when you go up high or when he's on the the flying car, the the main sources of light through the brown fog are those massive advertisements and, and video projections giving everything a sickly Blue and green light, as it's neo noir in a very yeah. perverted way. Obviously, and it's really Scott, right? Nineteen eighty-two, something like That's that. That's right.
1: Yeah, he had just done Alien, and it's interesting uh, to jump uh, a couple of decades and and on a continent. Is it if you see uh, uh, the film Lost in Translation and you walk down those Tokyo streets, it looks a lot like Blade Runner. I'm mm-hmm. yeah. uh, not the smog, but. Those huge neon signs everywhere that that dominate the landscape. I mean, and, uh, Blade Runner had a lot of stuff right. It's
0: interesting, and the feeling of exhaustion that um, Bill Murray and uh, Scarlett Johansson felt—that kind of ennui—is also present in Deckard and in the characters. There, there's there's a certain weighing you down of this environment on these folks. I'm just going to make a plug. There's this podcast I love called Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. And I think about six months ago, they had a twenty-minute episode that covered the building in which uh, Rutger Hauer and Daryl Hanna and um, Deckard had their big fight. I think it's the Bradbury Building. It is the Bradbury Building, which has a storied
1: history in cinema. It is used in the original DoA. It uh, there was a remake of M. You know, Fritz Lang's M was remade in the U.S. Uh, by Joseph Losey, but the same producer. And the building that, that the Peter Laurie character, who's played by David Wayne in the remake, the, where he hides out in is the Bradbury building.
0: 99pi.org, go check it out or just Google the Bradbury building in L.A. A, a lot of uh, TV and film settings are there because it has a 1930s, 1940s feel. The inside is sort of an open courtyard with many stairs, almost like an Escher building. So it gives you a combination of contemporary L.A., but seediness and classic architecture from within. Yeah, it's
1: a, it's a big atrium, and they've got these wonderful steel gilt uh, staircases that go up. And so almost anywhere you go around the, um, around the sides of the atrium as you go up, you can see a staircase or you can see an elevator, and it does have an old-world feel that's just absolutely
0: marvelous. Mm-hmm. Well, let's transition. Speaking of a uh, steel... And glass. Um, One of the movies that you brought up, which I hadn't seen and I immediately went to see when you brought it up, was uh, Playtime, Jacques Tati, 1967, I believe. I I knew of Jacques Tati, but I'd never seen this particular film. I've seen the Mononcle in America series, but this one I just hadn't seen. Tell us a little bit about that film and why why you're bringing it up as a fine example of a sense of place. It takes place within
1: the course of one day. Jacques Tati is a character named Monsieur Hulot, and it starts off in the airport, and he comes in, and tourists from America come in, and uh, business people arrive, and they take a bus, and they go out to downtown Paris, where he's meeting someone, and where these tourists are getting their, you know, get, getting their look at the real Paris. What's really funny is that this real Paris was the most expensive set ever built in France at the time. Uh, Jacques Tati had a couple of blocks of working buildings created so he'd have complete control for the shooting and he had forced perspective so he had buildings in the background but he would created this completely fake Paris outside of the city and he shot the entire uh, Paris you know his version of Paris in that movie to where there are no famous Paris landmarks except when a tourist Will open a glass door and the reflection will show the Eiffel Tower or Notre Dame or something famous. And you see in reflection the tourist Paris while they are in this kind of beautiful but anonymous uh, modern
0: city. He doesn't only do it with the typical landmarks, but as you're walking through this grid like city that he's created, occasionally you see a Parisian in a very stereotypical. Uh, garb of an old school Parisian, whether it's a beret or a simple dress, and they're selling flowers. So it really is jarring in the middle of this hustle and bustle with people in their suits, almost like a madman environment, to suddenly see old school Parisians there. And the American tourists go up to them and say, oh, oh, stay there. Don't move. Let me take your picture. And as uh, new Parisians enter the frame, they try to shoo them away in order to capture this authenticity in the middle of this completely modernist setting
1: it is a, a, an awful lot of satire of of how modernism is changing things how the modern world is changing things uh hulo goes to, to the apartment of a friend and when you see it from the outside these huge picture windows make them look like television screens into the lives of these people uh there are no curtains so there's no privacy here but one of the funniest things is that you then see the, the windows are about the same ratio as a movie screen. And inside, you see these people sitting down and turning to their TVs. And so you're looking at someone watching a screen through a screen.
0: Yeah, and, and the social interaction means, please come in. Here's my television. Why don't you sit in, in this furniture? My wife will bring you something. And, and as he pulls out, you can see basically four or five neighbors going through exactly the same kind of scene in every single one of these apartments. So the standardization of what it means to work in a capitalist society, then go home, enter your standardized home cubicle, and engage in the basically same standardized kind of activities. Amusing, but in some ways the melancholy and depression um, is depicted by, by that kind of presentation. Yeah.
1: Uh, outside, traffic is almost always gridlocked it 's just it 's just full of cars, streets are full of people, and everyone is on their way somewhere, but no one seems to stop and You have kind of these two romantic figures you have Lulo, who is just out of step with everybody, but he 's a very sweet guy uh, and very sincere and Then you have this American tourist who hardly has any lines if she has any at all. And she keep, keeps wistfully looking for the old Paris. She's the, Every time you see that reflection of a famous landmark, it's almost always her at the door. And she stops and she looks at the reflection and then looks back off screen as if to, to look at it before she goes into the next anonymous modern building cubicle.
0: And another thing that struck me was the, the sound design. Uh, there's a lot of murmuring and overlapping conversation, whether it's the American tourist hustling and bustling and and talking about what they will see next and where they should eat, but you also hear French dialogue and you hear electric humming of the environment around you. It, it reminded me of uh, Robert Altman movies, not only with overlapping dialogue, but just the entire soundscape of the physical space. And uh, as I was researching this movie in, in order to prepare for this uh, conversation, it didn't surprise me at all that David Lynch was a huge fan of this particular film and he, he mentioned the sound in particular as being influential to him and now that I think about David Lynch films and the electrical humming and the the slightly disconcerting silence in the soundtrack I can see that um, another thing that that struck me in this movie there there's basically almost two halves it seems it's the the airport, the office scene, how people live in this modernized world, and then there's a restaurant scene, a restaurant that is opening it's supposed to be a a high class restaurant and it's opening night, and everything is slightly off right and all the details are not completely done yet, and you can see the back of the room and the traditional French working class trying to conserve a facade of a very sophisticated cosmopolitan nightclub and restaurant, but it all falls apart. And the choreography of how a restaurant can open and fall apart under one night, it's mesmerizing. It's almost like a one-hour continuous feverish pitch of how a restaurant collapses into itself. Uh, and, and yet at the same time,
1: it's the energy of the people in there are able to turn that into a triumph. You know, the one place you actually get a sense of community – is inside that restaurant when, as things fall apart, there's an American tourist who decides to colonize this one part of the restaurant where I think part of the ceiling has fallen in almost like an accordion. Uh, Lattice of yeah. some kind falls down. And in. so he turns that into a gate and starts inviting people in and he creates his own little world within the restaurant and they have a party and and it doesn't seem to matter that
0: everything's falling apart because they've created this... This new uh, identity. Yeah. And then at the end, it's dawn and everybody's tired and they, they spill out into the streets and it's morning. And there's a, a drugstore they all go to because the drugstore also provides uh, breakfast as well. And what really struck me, not only that drugstore, but throughout the movie, there were brands all over the place, products all over the place presented. And, and these were some of the brands. Sinsano, Phillips, Heineken, Maxwell House. There were no French products anywhere in that film. So there's a, a, a commentary on globalization and capitalism and how it's flattening our experience across the world as well. I hadn't noticed that. And that's a great
1: observation. And for 1967, that's, that's really early for, yeah. for that sort of thing to happen. And particularly f- observing it in Paris because almost every film about Paris and about France, even by French fil- you know, filmmakers – focus on
0: what is uniquely french about it. Yeah, there's a certain pride and there's a certain terroir <laughs> to use their word that, that, that they're really proud about. And another thing that was depressing when I was <laughs> reading and researching after this film, they interview Jacques Tati and and he seemed completely defeated. He had a hard time producing this movie. He didn't get the the kind of success he wanted out of this movie. And uh, some people suggest that he he lost steam after this film even though he loved it so much. He just Lost well, or, he, he lost his
1: um, – uh, he went broke on the film. He spent his own money building that set. And when it flopped, he had to sell the rights to his movies. Uh, he no longer could finance his own films and he, he lost his autonomy. And he did make two more films. He made one that was just wonderful called Traffic that is, is a, a marvelous movie. And it's, it has to do with car culture. But playtime was the biggest idea. It was, it is recognized as you know a masterpiece now, and uh, most people believe, as do
0: I, that it is Jacques Tati's greatest movie. And for those of you who are thinking about watching this movie, I try to watch it on YouTube. There's a a version of the movie on YouTube, but it's basically somebody who took a a film of their television set, and it's it's a complete mess. So I think I streamed it. I don't remember if it was either Amazon or Hulu, but it, it's out there and you can find it. It was probably
1: Hulu because it's a it's on Criterion. And uh, actually, by the time this podcast comes out, Criterion's going to have its own streaming channel. You should be able to get it from there. It's called Filmstruck.
0: Filmstruck, like S-T-R-U-C-K?
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. It, it launches in October. So by the time this comes out, it will probably be available. And they're going to have... All the films that are owned by Criterion, they do license some movies, but they own uh, – a, a, you know, the majority of the films that come out from the Criterion Collection are ones that are, that are, are owned by uh, – in the US by Janus Films. Mm-hmm. And you should be able to see uh, Playtime from that. Do you know if it's a subscription model? Or yes, it's, it's okay. a subscription model. Mm-hmm. It's also a just magnificent Blu-ray of the, uh, and a DVD that Criterion put out of uh, Playtime and there's a box set of all of Jacques Tati's movies I'm a huge, huge Jacques Tati fan and Playtime is my favorite film of his and it therefore means that Playtime is one of my all-time favorite movies and it is a film that I get plunged into every time I watch it I fall into the world that he creates I'm just completely mesmerized and
0: completely a part of it I don't mean to minimize it, but another thing that struck me, I'm a child of the 70s and there used to be these uh, children's books. I'm going to try to pronounce his name. It's Richard Scarry. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Basically, you open the book and it's a city scene and there are all these little bears and characters and... And this little June bug that you have to spot in every page. Right. And, and the l- amount of detail of what's happening on the page is just striking. Even before Where's Waldo, there were these books. And it, it, it interests me because I think there was social commentary, subtle social, not so subtle social commentary going on in these children's books as well. So those of you who know Richard Scarry books, not to minimize Jack Tati and Playtime, you, you'll find affinities with that film. Um, any other ones you want to mention before I start jumping in on a couple more that I'm thinking of? Throw one in. Oh, me? Yes. I want to talk about The Conformist, because that's a movie that I love, and I've always loved. 1970, Bernardo Bertolucci, it's set in fascist Italy, and it's basically about uh, the main character, Jean-Louis Tritignan, trying to reconcile uh, working for the fascist government while maintaining personal integrity with relationships and... What I find so amazing is that he really captured an acute sense of period, but he does so by mixing a stylized presentation of fascism. You see angular presentations of cement blocks and monumental buildings and busts and people walking through these settings but being very minimized by the oppressive setting they're in. But at the same time... There are scenes in the movie which are extremely warm and sensual. There's a dance scene near the end of the film, which is just classic. And then I don't want to give away and spoil it, but at the end, there's a very tense scene that happens in a mist-covered forest that has piercings of sunlight in it. So what he did to give a sense of a place, and a place in a very abstract way, a fascist Italy as a whole, was was just quite striking to me.
1: Well, uh, yeah, the, the warm scenes you're talking about are actually in Paris, Because he has been sent by the fascist government to spy on an old professor of his uh, who has uh, left Italy and he is now in Paris. And so uh, when you get to Paris, that's where you get these really deep blue skies Mm -hmm. where you have that uh, wonderful dance scene. You have a sense of community that's very different from that alienation that you have in Italy.
0: Yeah, and even the the apartments in Italy, they are well-appointed. There are… The colors are warmer inside the apartment, but it's a type of oppression within the apartments he lives in. The, he works in a very cold, sterile environment, but when he goes into his apartment, the overstuffing and detail there seems oppressive to me. Yeah, there's a like a sepia tone to all those scenes
1: as if you're you know, seeing it through a, a, a lens of nostalgia, but it's a kind of a twisted nostalgia. It's shot by Vittorio Storara who went on to – he came to the U.S. and he shot, among other things, he shot Apocalypse Now for uh, Coppola. They shot an early scene of Trintignant's character talking to uh, um, uh, someone that's high up in the fascist uh, organization. He's a a newspaper – or he's a a radio commentator, and he's blind. And so they're having a conversation at a party full of blind people and this idea that he is being guided by the blind – you know to embrace the fascists and to work for them because that's going to give him a sense of belonging is uh one of the one of the bitter ironies of this movie that he is uh, you know he is embracing this this party of destruction and oppression
0: so really fascinating film um, I highly recommend it and I should mention just to make a pause here that Along with this podcast, there are going to be podcast notes where links to a lot of what we're talking about will be provided for you, as well as on my site. This must be the place. Io. Yes, you heard correctly. Not dot com. It's this must be the place. Io. There will be an article that corresponds to this podcast episode, and a lot of the links and clips of scenes and movie shots, etc., will will accompany this in order to give you that that full reference so you can take a look. So. Let's shift gears a bit. I'm curious about the methods and the tricks filmmakers use to give us us viewers a stronger connection to the places that are being presented. Some films present a really highly stylized, somewhat artificial presentations of places. We talked about a few of those earlier. While others tend to opt for a more, if you will, naturalistic or faithful representation of physical places. So there's the realist's. Can overly stylized films really provide viewers with a satisfying sense of place? Do we have to be naturalists all the time? Uh, I would say we don't because
1: anytime you decide where your camera is going to go and what direction you're going to point it in, you've made a choice. You have shaped the community. You've you've shaped the landscape that you're shooting in and chosen how to present it. And that long take does give you um, a sense of connection uh, just in its longevity, you feel uh, more grounded. Uh, you get a sense of being a part of that place more so than when you than when you stylize it. But and stylizing could be anything from, you know, shooting at night and using a couple of hard lights to give it a sense of mystery, or to hide parts of of the world that you don't want to see, or it could be. The camera angles, you know, going very low or, you know, going to a third-story window and shooting down to give a sense of minimizing the people, of making them look small in that area. But I think that any way that you choose to do it, you are still imposing an artistic perspective on whatever you're looking at.
0: I mean, artists are not journalists, right? They're not trying to necessarily capture an absolute realism the environment they're in. Well... Maybe some are. Let's let's talk about that in a second. But you're right. The act of just bracketing what I choose to show in my frame is an artistic choice, and it's making a, a judgment on what I think is valuable about a sense of place. And as the camera moves, I am choosing what arc it's taking and what are the details I'm going to show. It reminds me of this old debate. I think it was a, a French film theorist at the turn of the 20, uh, early 20th century, André Bazin, and Renoir and people who argued what was better from a cinematic point of view to just let the camera stay still and fixed and show action within the frame or start using editing in order to give a sense of place. And I remember somebody arguing that if you use editing... You are imposing a narrative upon folks, whereas if you let the camera just be and show action, you're allowing the freedom of your eyeball to pick and choose what you want to see in the frame and create your own story out of that. So it's an interesting debate in film theory.
1: Although um, just directing the actors to where to be and having someone up close to the camera and having them dominate, you are guiding where their eyes are going to go. You're always free to look where it is, but you're looking at a, a composed uh, frame. It might be a good time to talk about the Italian New Year because that had a huge impact on the way people made movies for the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, the Italian Neorealists, Year realists, uh, Roberto Rossellini, Vittorio uh, De Sica, they were making their movies just as the war was ending after uh, the U.S. had um, liberated Italy from Mussolini and from the Nazis, had driven the Nazis out, uh, who essentially had occupied it and these young directors took their cameras and shooting on what was known as short ends a lot of times these were these, these were the ends of you know a, a reel of film that had a little bit left from a newsreel photographer or something and they would take whatever scraps they could get of negatives and they would take their cameras and they would go to the streets and they would shoot on the streets in the rubble and they gave a sense that partly because they were shooting on documentary stock and partly because they were shooting under very primitive circumstances, they gave you a view that looked like a documentary, although it wasn't, although it was scripted and although they had actors, whether professional or non-professional, and they were showing the world how they looked at Italy at the time. They also gave you a texture of how things were. When you shoot in the rubble, you're showing real rubble. Uh, when you shoot on the streets where you know uh, six months ago they were patrolled by uh, by Nazis waiting for you know to, to hold back the American invasion, you've got a real neighborhood that went
0: through this. You're right, and if you are thinking about cameras and long takes and, and not editing, a lot of people see the end product, and there's a certain effortlessness. That is perceived about it is just a camera following action. But anyone who's worked and created films knows that behind the camera there's a tremendous amount of thinking, blocking and tackling. What are the pathway that the camera is going to take in order to capture all this? How can I position my actors and the objects that they're going to interact with so I can do this take in one unified flow? So the amount of thinking and design that occurs in something that seems completely naturalistic. Is just tremendous. Of course, there's a true verité where you just turn it on and go running, and that's more of a journalistic capturing. But but you're right. The amount of um, mental editing that occurs in those long takes is just tremendous. You know, even though you're not making a cut in
1: the film, by the time you've got to your fourth or fifth take and got what you've wanted, you have shaped reality
0: to reflect the story that you're telling. Mm-hmm. And I think you know a common complaint i hear and i engage in it as well i shake my fist and say get off my lawn are movies that rely very heavily on editing cuts it's almost percussive and there are editing cuts every two three seconds sometimes even more it really frustrates me because i really want to get a sense of the place in which a movie is set and then there's all this cutting and editing and it's it's guiding me to view certain things and capture the meaning of certain things and i must admit sometimes it drives me nuts Sometimes it drives
1: you nuts for all, for all the right reasons that is driving you nuts, because they're people who are editing just just to edit, just to keep the this you know sense of sensory uh, assault going on you, because uh, the kind of fast editing that's happening in a Michael Bay film or a Transformers movie is a lot different than the montage rapid editing of you know Sergei Eisenstein or. Orson Welles, you know, these uh, filmmakers who, v- who have very specific points to make with every shot. And that is going to uh, certainly affect your perception of a film. You know, someone who is using a fast uh, graphic kind of editing to make a point to fragment the world specifically to give you a sense of instability versus someone who just Cuts because they want to keep uh, this sense of energy going. They want to direct your eye to whatever, you know, new uh, guga they've got, you know, special
0: effect or emotional reaction to drive a point home. Yeah, and you're right. If I think of uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, which, of course, is the film school classic of the introduction of the more aggressive jump cut in editing – if I think about my memory of that film, and I haven't seen it in a few years, it's it's set in Paris, going back to how places are represented. And you'd think if there's a lot of editing and jump cuts, you might lose a sense of place. But in fact, I think Godard actually captured a certain youthful energy and shifting of old Paris to new modernist Paris by showing Belmondo and Jean Seberg driving through Paris and showing little jump cuts of how they go through different neighborhoods and you get impressionistic bits and pieces of their life and it's, it's an expression not only of their psychological state but how Paris is shifting as well and becoming much more frenetic. So you're right, there is a sense in which judicious good use of editing choices and cuts and jump cuts can give you a good sense of place. I do want to give uh, props as well to the long take and there's a certain... Director that I appreciate, and I I, when I first saw his films, I thought I probably wouldn't tolerate them, but they absolutely suck me in. Mesmerizing worlds, and that's a Russian director, Andrei Tarkovsky. I think he was mostly active in the fifties, sixties, seventies. I don't remember when he died. He might have died in the eighties or nineties, but he is a master at creating a sense of nostalgia and I use that word on purpose because that's the name of one of his films from taking long takes showing characters in natural settings walking by rivers looking at the water in the river move languidly while folks walk and talk and they're almost dwarfed by their environment but the combination of sound design visual design and just letting the camera run for three or four minutes just has such a a redolent sense of the places they're in, whether that's Russia, Sweden. He's done it in Italy. This is a, a director I really admire for taking long takes that give a sense of place,
1: or a space station that has uh, seen better days. It's just, it, uh, Solaris. Talk about a you know sense of place that doesn't exist, and uh, he gives you a, the atmosphere uh, so beautifully in
0: that film. Yeah, some of the films. There's Solaris. There's Nostalgia. There's Mirror. There's Stalker. I mean, highly recommended for those of you who really want to study how a long take cinema can really give you a sense of place. I would, I would highly recommend that.
1: I, I, would, I would add um, a filmmaker who just died this year, um, Abbas Kar- Karastami uh, from Iran. Uh, his last two films were made outside of the country. He left Iran and he made a uh, certified copy in Italy and then he made Someone Like You in Japan. But especially his Iranian films, he tended toward these long takes, oftentimes people in a car having a conversation as the world is going by. But in almost every one of his films, he tended to just have the camera, not necessarily static. It would, it would often follow and, and move, but, it, but slowly. And he then would give you a, a sense of not just the place, but the pace of life in that place the rhythm at which life unfolded for these people, particularly if you're shooting in a small village, like in Where's My Friend's Home, which is a lovely film about a boy who, it's mostly about him trying to find a school buddy because he accidentally got his school homework. And it becomes this journey through the village, the people he
0: meets, and uh, what life is like uh, for these folks. And that's wonderful. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because it it reminds me, of things I should read, movies I should watch, places I should visit. And I've had, what is his name, Avias Karastami? Karastami. In my mind, for the longest time, as somebody I should watch, write him on a list, and then I've never managed to do it. Any ideas on where I could find his stuff? Is it mostly DVD or stream on demand? I don't know That's how true? much of it is streaming
1: right now, but we live in Seattle and Scarecrow Video has all of them.
0: I suspect a Scarecrow video link is going to appear in the show notes in, in the future.
1: Well, I, uh, I, I know that I do have a vested interest. Having, I was an employee there for three years, but it's been almost 20 years since I've been there. And I have to say it is still one of the greatest resources. And, uh, and I'll give this plug because they are, a non, uh, they are a nonprofit organization. They rent. It costs you money because that's what it takes to support something like that. But they, they are an amazing resource for this city.
0: I think about the novel uh, Nick Hornby, I believe, is the author, who wrote High Fidelity, and there's a movie called High Fidelity with John Cusack about the life of record store uh, geeks who know every little nook and cranny of music. Um, I mean this in the most loving sense. Scarecrow Video is the equivalent of High Fidelity for those who are interested in, in film and cinema. And and I think um, in order to go a little bit closer to the United States, a, a movie that I'm thinking about now that you think about... Um, how cameras move through places and capture characters and, and fill out the texture of a place or a certain time. Richard Linklater, Slacker, a 1991, moving through Austin, Texas. That strikes me as another one of those films where the camera gliding really gives you a sense not only of a place but of, of a certain cultural moment. Oh, I
1: think you're right. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that in a while, and I, I do think about Richard Linklater a lot because he has continued to make uh, tremendous movies. And uh and Slacker is one of those that seems to be more uh I don't wanna know if it's I don't wanna say it's more collaborative than his other films, but it's something that where a community came together to make this independent film and uh and the style will change from scene to scene to scene, depending on who's in there and what the energy
0: is. Yeah, and I think it's a trilogy. I'm gonna get all the names of these movies wrong and maybe I'll fix it in post production. But there was uh, before Sunrise Before sunset, Uh before midnight. Right. And it's uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, uh, two folks that meet in Europe, fall in love, get married. And I think it's a 20 or 30-year-old covering them every 10 years or so relationship. And it's following their conversation, very frank conversations, which I think is rare to see in American cinema such a – capturing of frank conversations that go on uninterrupted for 12 minutes at a time it's really quite something and it is a tremendous collaboration too because
1: the scripts are written by the three of them by by, by link delpy and ethan hawk
0: and, and it reminds me of uh, eric romer films which were you know criticized superficially as being just capturing people talking but if you listen to what they're talking about and you look at the environments in which they're having these conversations you get a sense of place not only from the physical locations they're in but how the psychology of the folks living within these spaces shifts over time—it's it's really fascinating. Um, Sean, thank you so much for for being here today. I mean, we talked about so many directors, so many films. For the most part, focusing on how places are represented within films. What are those films that show great places? What are the methodologies that filmmakers can use in order to really project a sense of place? But knowing the nature of the conversation and who we are, we. We went through nooks and crannies all over the place, but I think it was a lot of fun. Tell us a bit about where listeners could go online and find out more about you and read your stuff and and what you're up to. Well, yeah,
1: you pointed out I have my own blog, which is seanaxe.com, and that's just a repository of things that are mostly published elsewhere. I am the editor of ParallaxView.org. That's Parallax-View.org. And among other things, we are reprinting the, the run of articles and reviews from a magazine from Seattle called Movie Tone News that ran uh, through the 1970s and was edited by Richard Jameson. I write for Turner Classic Movies. Uh, most of the films that show on Turner Classic Movies, if you go on their website, you'll find an essay. And I've written a few hundred of those. And I write for a, a website called Cinefiled.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for joining us. This was fantastic. And I really enjoy talking about films. Hopefully, you could see that as well. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Eric. so what are we going to cover next week next week we're going to have a chat with rodrigo de medeiros he is a filmmaker and photographer based in seattle he and i were colleagues for a while at a local digital advertising agency and rodrigo and his family recently kicked away from the nine to five life and undertook a year-long trek that took them to 13 countries in roughly those 12 months We will not only chat about the places he visited, but really dig deep into what motivated him to push away from a conventional life, break free from that daily grind, and make that leap of faith to take a year off with his whole family and travel. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave comments about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. Until the next time, this must be the place.